0: March 11th, 2005, it was a Friday, on that day in Atlanta, Georgia, an alleged rapist named Brian Nichols was in the courthouse and he was waiting to go to trial, but Brian Nichols decided he didn't want to stick around for the trial, so he escaped. He overpowered a guard, knocked her unconscious, and stole her gun. And during his escape, he shot three people dead, including the judge. Pretty quickly, the entire city of Atlanta was on lockdown. I remember that day. The news caught my attention because I had moved to Georgia just a few months earlier. When you hear a story like that, you're just really hoping they catch the guy. Well, Nichols was later found, but not in the way anyone expected Around 2:30 a.m., he had made it as far as Duluth, Georgia, which is about 30 miles outside of downtown Atlanta. And that was when he found a woman named Ashley Smith. Ashley was unlocking her apartment door after going to buy cigarettes at a local convenience store. And Brian Nichols put a gun at her side, forced his way into her apartment, and there he held her hostage for several hours. Now, just in case you're not familiar with this story, I want to tell you right here that Ashley Smith was never harmed during this encounter, so you don't have to worry about that. But I do want you to know a little about Ashley. Up to this point, her life had not been going well. As a young girl, she was raised in church, but then in high school, she drifted a long way from God. In her teenage years, she started using drugs And then a little later, she got married, and Ashley and her husband went deeper into drugs. Tragically, her husband was stabbed during a fight with some former friends, and he died in her arms. From there, Ashley went into a downward spiral. She was kicked out of rehab twice. Her drug addiction began to take over until she could no longer care for her five-year-old daughter, Paige. She signed over custody to her Aunt Kim. By that time, she was abusing every drug under the sun, but meth had become her drug of choice. And on the night that Brian Nichols showed up at her home, she had just been trying to get her apartment into shape so that her daughter could come for a visit. Now, based on what you've heard so far, that's a pretty miserable story, isn't it? It's actually two miserable stories that come together. And as we sit here in church this morning, I want to ask you a question. What difference does Jesus make in a story like that? We may not know Ashley Smith or Brian Nichols, but... We all know people who have made bad decisions. We know people who have gotten into some serious messes. Hey, if, if we're being honest, we could tell stories about bad decisions we made or messes we've gotten into. So, I'll ask you again, what difference does Jesus make in messy stories like that? Do the things we talk about in here really make a difference out there? Well, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus can and will make a difference for anyone, anywhere. In fact, that's the point of the story that we're going to look at in the Bible today. We're looking at really just one primary truth this morning. And I'll go ahead and tell you what it is right now. No living person should be considered unreachable or beyond the reach of God. I'm sure you and I could think of someone we'd call an unlikely candidate to become a sold-out follower of Jesus. You know who that is for you? Who is that person that makes you say, yeah, I'll never see his face in church, or I can't imagine that she'll ever turn things around and give her life to God? truth is, none of those people are hopeless. Nobody is impossible for God to reach. We can see evidence of that if we look around this room right now. We can can also see evidence in the Bible, in the story of a man named Saul This morning we're wrapping up our series called Crucial Conversations. And each week during this series, we've unpacked several significant conversations that Jesus had with people. And we're doing that one more time today. And in this conclusion, we're looking at one of the most influential characters in the whole Bible. In fact, this guy wrote about 25% of the New Testament based on word count. We usually refer to him as Paul, but early on, he was known as Saul. And this morning, I may go back and forth between both of those names, but whether I say Saul or Paul, just remember I'm talking about the same person. And the thing you need to know about Saul is this before he met Jesus, Saul was maybe the most unlikely candidate in the world to become a Christian. It's no exaggeration to say for the early church, Saul was public enemy number one. Saul hated Christians. He persecuted them. He worked to have them killed. So, where did that hatred come from? And then, how did his life change so dramatically? Well, to tell the story of Saul, we should start with a little background. I want to begin by showing you a couple of maps. As we go along here, some uh, parts of this story may sound fantastic, but this is not a fairy tale. I want all of us to remember that we're talking about a real person who lived a real life. Saul was, you know, like one of us, just, you know, back in history a ways. But if you had lived in the first century, you could have sat down and had lunch with him, and you could have heard his version of this story. So first, let's go back to the birth of Saul. Now, at the top of this map, it says that Saul was born in A.D. 5, but we should keep in mind that we don't have specific dates for any of these events. Uh, Every date you'll see here is an estimate. But at any rate, Saul is most likely a few years younger than Jesus, but he was born in a very different part of the world, up in the city of Tarsus. Now, let's get our bearings as we look at this map. The the land at the bottom there is the northern coast of Africa. And up at the top, you've got Europe. From left to right, you can see Italy and then Greece. And then on the right side of the map, down lower there, you can can see Israel. And then above Israel, there's that stretch of land that that points out to the left or the west. And in Saul's time, that land was known as Asia Minor. In our day… known as the nation of Turkey. So, the city of Tarsus is situated right there in modern-day Turkey. Tarsus is still a city today, but back in the first century, it was an intellectual hotspot. Not quite to the level of Athens, but it was up there. Education was a top priority in Tarsus. We should also know a little about Saul's family. For one thing, they were Roman citizens. And that status was passed on to Saul. Roman citizenship was important because that gave you several special privileges in the empire. Another thing about Saul's family is that he was born to conservative Jewish parents who taught him the scriptures from a very early age. But then at some point, Saul's life took a major turn. Somewhere around the age of 10, or maybe as he was approaching puberty, Saul makes a big move to the city of Jerusalem, and we don't know if Saul moved there by himself or if his whole family went along, but for a young up-and-coming Jewish boy with big dreams, Jerusalem was the place to be. The temple was there, the Jewish religious leaders was there, were there, and before long, Saul was there too. Saul became a student of the most well-known rabbi of the time, a man named Gamaliel. And under Gamaliel's teaching, Saul just rose to the top of the class. Eventually, he joined a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious elite, the keepers of the Jewish laws and customs. Later on, as, as Saul was a young man, he started hearing this commotion about a movement that was called The Way, and the followers of The Way were disciples of a man named Jesus. And Rumors spread that this Jesus was actually the Messiah, the one the Jews had been waiting for for so long. Pharisees were not easily convinced, though, and some of them stepped in to confront Jesus, and then they were part of a successful plot to have Jesus crucified But then after the crucifixion, new rumors were spreading that Jesus had risen from the dead, and people were pointing to this resurrection as proof that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, for a young, zealous leader like Saul, this Jesus movement was infuriating. He had no patience for it. You you say that Jesus is the Messiah, well, he's not. You say that he rose from the dead, well, he didn't. And we don't need you spreading these lies. We have the scriptures from God, and you are twisting the scriptures to fit your own narrative. That was Saul's perspective. And based on his opinion, these Christians were a serious threat. They needed to be wiped out. And if that meant killing them, so be it. Actually, it wasn't long before it came to that. One day, there was a Christian named Stephen who got up and spoke. Stephen spoke out against the Jewish leaders, and the crowd just turned on him. In Acts chapter 7, it says that the people covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him, killing him by throwing large rocks at his head and his body. And meanwhile, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Apparently, Saul had some official part in this execution. And at the very least, he approved at what was happening. But that was only the beginning for Saul. From there, persecuting Christians became the primary purpose of his life. Commentator Mark Moore says that Saul was ravaging the church like a wild animal tearing at its prey. But I want you to hear Saul's own words about this time in his life. Later in the book of Acts, he talks about what he did and why he did it. Acts chapter 26, verse 9, he says, So, this wasn't just a hobby for Saul, this was an obsession. Have you ever known someone who's just obsessed with something or someone? And have you ever tried to talk them out of their obsession? It's not easy, is it? So, imagine going up to Saul and telling him, hey, knock it off. You think he's going to listen? Not likely. Well, let's take it a step further. Imagine going to Saul and saying, Hey, Saul, not only should you stop persecuting Christians, you should become one of them. How do you think that's going to go over? Not very well, right? But let's go back to that main point for today. You remember what it was? It's that foundational truth no living person should be considered unreachable or beyond the reach of God. That truth applied to Saul even when he was at his worst. So, what was it that made him change? Well, it was a direct encounter with Jesus. We read about this in Acts chapter 9, and let's see what happens there. Acts 9, starting with verse 1, it says, "...meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples." He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul is about to take a little trip. And going back to our map, you can see where Damascus is to the north and a little east of Jerusalem. If you've been following the news at all this week, you've been hearing about Damascus. This city is the capital of Syria, and in our time, Syria is a dangerous place to be. It's a place of violence and bloodshed and civil war. Back in Saul's time, though, he had a plan to bring his own kind of violence to Damascus. There was a strong Jewish community in this town and many of those Jews had become followers of Jesus, but Saul wasn't going to stand for that. So, he makes arrangements to go arrest the Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and punishment. Now, this trip may not look very far on this map, but the distance would be a hundred plus miles, and it would have taken a minimum of four days for Saul to travel there by foot. But here's where we really have to pay attention because it's on this journey That Saul experiences his turning point. And this is not just a major pivot point for Saul. This is a major event in the history of Christianity and really in the history of the world. Let's go to verse 3 of Acts 9. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So, we've come to the supernatural part of the story. Several extraordinary things have just happened. First, this extremely bright light flashed around Saul and his companions. Later on, uh, he would say that this light was brighter than the sun. It was uh, probably more than just a light because it knocked Saul to the ground. It also blinded him. But there was also that voice, wasn't there? The voice of Jesus. Jesus decided, it's time that Saul and I had a crucial conversation. It's kind of like he's saying, Saul, why are you fighting me? Why are you trying to hurt me? It's time to stop. It's time to stop working against me and start working with me. At the end of this short conversation, Jesus tells Saul to go into Damascus, and just like that, the encounter is over. So do you think an experience like that would be enough to make a person change, change their direction, change their mind, change their life? I'd say that would about do it, right? And you may think to yourself, well, sure, it would be a lot easier if Jesus spoke to me like that, but we need to be careful here. First, uh, Jesus has spoken to us. He's told us everything we need to know right here in the Bible. But there's another thing we should consider. If Jesus were to come to you this afternoon and speak to you in an audible voice, are you sure you'd like what he would have to say? In Saul's case, I'm sure those words were terrible to hear. Saul was waking up to the fact that he was not one of the good guys. He was a bad guy. He was on the wrong side of goodness and truth, and he'd been doing his best to exterminate goodness and truth. Saul was guilty before God of some of the worst crimes imaginable, and Jesus literally stopped Saul in his tracks. He's been blinded by this dazzling light. He's been left stunned, but he knows what to do. Jesus said to go into the city, and with the help of his friends, he does. So Saul is finally ready to start following Jesus, following his instructions. Now, right about at this same time, Jesus has another crucial conversation with a different man up in Damascus. We're going to get two for the price of one today. Now, this second man is a Christian. His name is Ananias, and God wants to use him to help Saul through this major change in his life. We'll pick up the story in verse 10 of Acts 9. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Basically, Jesus is saying, hey, Ananias, I'm arranging a little meeting here. You need to go find Saul. I've already told him that you're coming. Now, if you're Ananias, what would you do next? I mean, he's already a Christian. He's already surrendered his life to Jesus, so when Jesus shows up and speaks to him out of thin air, don't you think he'd do what he was asked to do? Well, it's very interesting. Ananias is not quite ready to follow these instructions, and you know why that is? It's the same thing I mentioned a minute ago. Ananias just didn't like what Jesus had to say, so he actually talks back. Listen to this. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias is like, Jesus, do you know who you're talking about here? This guy is not on our side. He's not going to listen to me. I don't even think he'd listen to you. Ananias has this knee-jerk reaction of thinking that Saul is unreachable. Well, look at the next verse. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So it took some convincing, but Ananias eventually figured out that he was not smarter than Jesus. Really, how many times have we acted like that? Just because we don't understand what God is doing, we start to question Him. Or or just because we think of a problem as impossible, we start to act like it's too big for God, too. But that's when we need to step back and remember our place, just like Ananias did here That's definitely true when we're tempted to think of someone, anyone, as unreachable. I want to give you another truth to go with our main point today, and it's this. When God is pursuing someone, the best thing to do is stop resisting and cooperate. Now, you may be a little like Ananias today. You may know someone who, as of this moment, has no interest in following Jesus You may think of that person as just about hopeless, but the truth is God may be pursuing that person right now, and He may have you in mind. He may want to use you in the process, and if that is the case, how are you responding? Are you resisting or are you cooperating? Are you praying for that person consistently, asking for God to soften their heart? Are you looking for opportunities to share God's love or point them to Jesus? Are you taking advantage of the doors that God opens, the opportunities that He gives you? God may have you in mind as the one to reach out. But some of us in the room are less like Ananias and more like Saul, and God may be telling you, hey, it is time to stop fighting me and start following me. But whether we're more like Saul or like Ananias, the best thing we can do is stop resisting and cooperate. In the end, both Ananias and Saul decide to cooperate. Ananias goes to that house and finds Saul, just like Jesus said. And by that point, Ananias had gained confidence and power from the Holy Spirit. Saul explains the scene in his own words over in Acts chapter 22. He says, a man named Ananias came to see me. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you've seen and heard. And now... What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on His name. That's exactly how God works, isn't it? We saw this with Peter last week, and we're seeing it with Saul today. Peter had failed by denying Jesus, and Saul had failed by choosing to be the enemy of Jesus. But in both cases, Jesus never gave up on these guys. He said, if you're willing I will restore you and forgive you. I'll give you salvation, and I'll also give you a purpose. That's what God does. That's how He works. And after Saul's meeting with Ananias, he did get baptized, and he went on to live a completely different life than who he had been before. He went from Saul the persecutor to Paul the preacher, He took all of that passion that he had been using to fight the church, and he allowed God to funnel that passion to grow the church and lead people to Jesus. He traveled all over the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, being persecuted himself, and playing a pivotal role in the expansion of Christianity. As a matter of fact, it's hard to imagine you and I, sitting here today, if Paul had not been obedient to God's calling. The churches that were planted by Paul went on to plant more churches and more churches. We can see a direct line of influence from the first century all the way down to today. In fact, I want to give you an example, and it may seem strange, but just hang with me for a moment. If you look at a map of Paul's missionary journeys, you see that he traveled extensively in Europe. And over time, Christianity spreads all the way up to England. Now, fast forward several hundred years, and I want to tell you about a man named Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a well known preacher in England in the 1800s, and he led a prominent ministry based out of London. Well, lots of people became followers of Jesus as a result of Spurgeon's preaching. And one of them was a young man who also went on to become a preacher. Spurgeon was very impressed with this young man, and he told him, you should go to America and serve God there and preach there. Well, that's exactly what the young man did. He came to the United States, had a ministry for years, and then his son became a preacher. His grandson also became a preacher. Even his great-grandson became a preacher. And I want to point out that great-grandson because he's still around. He's doing ministry today. His name happens to be Rick Warren. You may have heard of Rick. He leads a church called Saddleback out in California. And he also wrote a book called The Purpose-Driven Life I have a copy of this book with me today and I'm sure some of you have read it. It's sold tens of millions of copies. But now here's where this all comes back around. Remember Ashley Smith, the woman who was held hostage by Brian Nichols? Well, shortly before that encounter with a murderer, Ashley had started going to church with her Aunt Kim, the one who had been watching and taking care of her daughter, Paige. And at that church... Ashley picked up a copy of The Purpose-Driven Life, and on the night that Brian showed up, she was already trying to get her life back on track with God, but she also had this internal battle with her addiction to drugs. In fact, she had meth in her apartment that night, and Brian asked her if she had any drugs, and she thought to herself, well, he's going to find them anyway, so she told him about the meth three times. Brian asked Ashley to do the drugs with him, and she says, that moment felt like her own encounter with Jesus. It was like Jesus was standing there asking her, what are you going to do? Are are you ready to give this up once and for all? You can almost hear Ananias saying, what are you waiting for? So she did. In that moment, Ashley decided she was done with those drugs forever, and she said no to Brian. As the night went on, Ashley pulled out her copy of The Purpose Driven Life, and she asked Brian if he'd be okay with her reading it out loud, he said he was okay with that. So she read the beginning of chapter 32, where it says, what you are is God's gift to you. What you do with yourself is your gift to God. God deserves your best. He shaped you for a purpose, and He expects you to make the most of what you've been given. The two of them got into a discussion about spiritual things. Brian asked Ashley, what's your purpose? And she said, I I think it's to help people and serve others. Then Brian asked, what do you think my purpose is? And Ashley told him, Well, I think you need to go to jail and pay for what you've done. But then maybe your purpose is to help others in jail and minister to them. They continued talking through the night. And in the morning, Ashley even made pancakes for Brian. Around 10 a.m., he allowed her to leave the apartment because she had an appointment to go meet her daughter. That's when she called the police. Brian Nichols was arrested, and he's currently in prison serving multiple life sentences without a chance of parole. Now, 15 years ago, I don't believe either Brian Nichols or Ashley Smith appeared to be a likely candidate to become a sold-out follower of Jesus. And as of today, I don't know anything about the spiritual state of Brian Nichols. He's in prison And what I do know is as long as he's living, we can't consider him unreachable. I do know a little more about Ashley's story, though. After spending those years as a hostage, or those hours as a hostage, uh, Ashley's life was never the same. She describes that night as a spiritual awakening. She's never gone back to drugs. Today, she's a committed follower of Jesus. She's also remarried She and her husband are raising three children. But think about this. How did God get to Ashley? Well, way back, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus changed the life of a man named Saul. Saul became Paul. And Jesus worked through Paul to plant churches. Jesus later worked through a man named Charles Spurgeon Jesus also worked through several generations of preachers, and He worked through a man named Rick Warren who wrote a book that pointed people to Jesus. And He also worked through a crazy situation where Ashley Smith could have easily died, but instead, God brought her new life. Now, was all of that unlikely? Sure. But was it impossible? Was Ashley unreachable? Of course not. You know, I would love to have the chance to hear more of your stories, to, to hear details of how God has pursued you. I know we have some amazing stories in this room. None of us has ever been beyond the reach of God. And I want to close today by giving you a challenge. Whether you're in the shoes of Saul or Ananias consider whether Jesus is asking you the same question we heard a few minutes ago. What are you waiting for? If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, what are you waiting for? If you've never followed His instructions to turn away from your sin, what are you waiting for? If you've never followed His instructions to get up and be baptized, what are you waiting for? if you've resisted partnering with God when He wants you to be a part of leading someone to Jesus, what are you waiting for? It's time. It's time to stop resisting and cooperate. Surrender to Jesus. Receive the gift of salvation and receive the gift of purpose. Let Him work in you and through you and never forget that no living person is beyond the reach of God. Let's pray. Father, I know that over the years there have been so many unlikely stories that have happened because you got involved and someone decided to stop resisting and cooperate with you. I also know that You want to see a lot more of those unlikely stories play out in the coming days. God, I I pray for all of us here today. There's something You're calling us to, and it may not be something we want to hear. God, I pray that You will break down the resistance in our hearts, that we will develop the habit of saying yes to You whenever you call us to follow. I know that we can trust you. We can trust that you are good, that you love us more than anyone else, and you will work all things together for the good of those who love you. So God, I pray for that today. Give us hearts that are surrendered to you and willing to cooperate. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.